0: in John 17:17 17, 17, our Lord Jesus prayed on our behalf sanctify them in the truth your word is truth so if you have your bible with you this morning and i hope you do please turn to 1 peter chapter 3 verses 19 through 20 which records for us the second of four spiritual realities that you and i enjoy when we follow closely after Christ If you recall, Peter has been saying that as believers in Jesus Christ and as elect exiles in this world, we will often face hostility, hardship, rejection, and suffering from those around us. And if we're ever going to be able to courageously respond to and reach even those who cause us pain with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to need to be thoroughly convinced of what Peter wrote of in Verse 17, and that is that it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We need to be absolutely persuaded that it is always better to suffer alongside Jesus than to ever sin alongside this world. That it is always better to do good in the sight of God no matter the consequences. We need convincing evidence that it is always better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And Peter gives us that evidence here in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, through the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that it is always better to suffer for doing good than to sin because it was better for Jesus. Jesus suffered more than any other human has ever lived. No one ever went as far as he did from where he was, exalted in heaven, to where he went, humiliated and crucified on a cross. Christ suffered more than any human has ever suffered. He experienced the full weight and fury of God's eternal wrath as payment for our sins in our place. And yet, despite the greatness of his sufferings, the blessings of obedience far outweighed it all. And that is how you and I know that it is always better to suffer for doing good than to sin because it was better for Jesus. And if it was better for Jesus, who suffered infinitely more than you and I will ever know, then it will be much better for us as well. And when we commit ourselves to doing good no matter the pain and following Jesus no matter the cost, Peter tells us that it will be better for us because we will partake in and we will share in four glorious realities that were true of Jesus We looked at the first last week that when we follow closely after Christ, no matter the cost, we share first in the purpose of Christ's sufferings. That's in verse 18 where Peter writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Peter's point there is quite obvious. If Jesus' sufferings was the means by which he drew and restored us and reconciled us to God, then perhaps our suffering will be the tool that God uses to draw others to saving faith in Jesus Christ as well. When we choose as Christians to suffer in doing good rather than to sin, even our pain can have an evangelistic purpose. We can share in the purpose of Christ's sufferings. Well, there are three more glorious realities that are ours in Christ that can impact our evangelism, and those are found in verses 19 through 22. The first is the power of Christ's spirit that we share in when we closely follow after him. That's in verses 19 through 20. The second is the picture of Christ's salvation in verse 21. And then the final one is the preeminence of Christ's splendor. So when we follow closely after Jesus, we share in these four glorious realities. We share in the purpose of Christ's sufferings. We share in the power of Christ's spirit. We share in the picture of Christ's salvation. And we share in the preeminence of Christ's splendor. And I need to let you know that we'll just look at that second one today, the power of Christ's spirit, and you'll find out why really soon. So in that, with that in mind, please stand with me. Out of reverence for the Word of God, as I read our passage today, from First Peter chapter three, verses 18 through 22. Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, writes these pure and inerrant words for us today. Verse 18: "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God." being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is the word of God who makes our ways steadfast in keeping his commandments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for how it gives us encouragement. We thank you, Father, that there are jewels of truth in your word, which is a great reward for those who dig for them, as they reveal to us your glory. So, Father, I pray that you would do that today. Help us this morning as a church to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength through your word. Help us earnestly seek a greater understanding of it so that as we come to understand it, we might live in light of it for your honor and glory in this world and in this time in which we live. Thank you, Father, for the power of Christ's spirit, which is available to us today, to this task. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, we as believers must choose to suffer along with Christ rather than to sin along with this world because when we follow closely after Jesus, we share not only in the purpose of Christ's suffering, we also share in the power of Christ's Spirit. This is verses 19 through 20, which we're going to look at this morning. The power of Christ's Spirit. Now, I need to make this very clear. This is going to be a little bit different of a sermon than most. This is a very difficult and highly debated passage of scripture. And I need you to know that I am not going to take the time this morning to reenact for you all the numerous debates that swirl around this passage for centuries concerning what is the correct interpretation of this passage. I'm just going to do three things this morning. First, I will summarize as simply as possible the three main interpretations of this passage and their central arguments. Why am I going to take the time to do this? For two reasons. First, this will allow you to go off and do your own study of this of these views, if you should so desire. And second, it will let you know that I don't hold my interpretation that I'm going to give you this morning from a position of ignorance. I've studied at great length each one of these positions, and we can certainly discuss them if this is the type of thing that floats your boat at great length more after the service. But for the sake of actually getting to the point of exhortation and encouragement this morning, I'm just going to start off by summarizing as simply as possible the three main interpretations and their most central arguments. Second, I'm then going to share with you briefly which ones I think are wrong and why, and which one I think is right and why. The reason to do this is so that you'll know my thinking behind this, so that you can be a noble Berean and you can study for yourself about whether what I say is true or not. And then finally, once I actually present what I think is the right interpretation, I'm going to finally exposit the text in light of that interpretation and, uh, so that we can actually be encouraged by this passage, truth and apply it to our everyday lives. Because this is not a passage ultimately to be debated. This is a passage to be rejoiced in, to be worshipped over, and to obey. And so Peter writes in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I just want to remind you, as I mentioned briefly last week, that that last Greek phrase, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, speaks to the means by which Christ died. Therefore, it speaks to the means by which Christ was made alive. It speaks to the process by which he died. And the process by which he rose again. So in other words, Jesus was put to death how? He was put to death by fleshly processes, whipping, scourging, uh, crucifixion. But he was made alive in the spirit. He was made alive by spiritual processes, by the spirit of God, as Romans 1 verse 4 says. So Peter's talking about Christ's death and resurrection back in verse 18. And he's talking about the main difference about how both were brought about. Christ died by physical means, but he didn't rise by physical means. He rose by Spiritual means by the power of his indestructible life This is going to be crucial for us to remember when we begin applying these verses to evangelism in a few moments Jesus went from death to life. How not by physical means, but by spiritual means Listen So it is for all those who come after Christ in faith. They are brought from death into life, not by physical means, but by spiritual means, by means of the Holy Spirit's power, which is exactly what Peter has taught us all the way back into chapter 1, verse 3, while we are born again by God's great mercy and power. So, after Peter reminds us of that truth, that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Peter then writes in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits, if you have another translation, you might see the words now, to the spirits now in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now that is a twisted knot of a sentence. By the way, I think it's hilarious that Peter, who writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, that there are some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand, he then writes a paragraph like this. <laughs> so what is Peter talking about here? Well, as I said, there are three main interpretations of this passage What I want to walk you through. First, The first interpretation is that Jesus, after his death, but before his resurrection, he descended into hell as an incorporeal spirit, and there he personally preached condemnation to the generation of unbelievers that perished in the flood. The second interpretation that people take on this passage is that Jesus did basically the same thing as the first, except instead of of preaching to unbelievers in hell, he preached condemnation to fallen angels, to demons, who supposedly performed some grievous sin during the time of Noah. And the third interpretation is that Jesus, during the time of Noah, preached to the unbelievers who perished in the flood by his spirit through Noah himself. So those are your three options. Now, how do we process this? Well, whenever you're having to deal with multiple interpretations of a passage, it's always good to send those interpretations through the grid of clearly revealed biblical doctrines. Which ones hold up to what we know to be true about the rest of what Scripture teaches, and which ones don't? And so let's do that this morning, okay? This is me letting you in on what I work through throughout the week. So, first, let's consider the doctrine of Scripture itself. As I was trying to think through this, I asked myself the following question. Is Peter giving a new revelation about something that can't be found anywhere else in Scripture, like the activities of Jesus between his death and resurrection? Or is Peter giving a renewed understanding about something that's already been firmly established in Scripture, like the preaching of Noah and its connections to Christ? The reason why I ask that question is because of the nature of Scripture itself. Scripture is progressive meaning that it builds on itself. Scripture is unified, meaning that it's consistent with itself. It never disagrees. And Scripture is its own interpreter, meaning the best way to understand a difficult passage is in light of easier passages. So... As students of the word of God, when we come across an utterly unique interpretation that claims something that is not found really anywhere else in all of scripture, that should immediately at least give us pause because scripture doesn't usually work that way. So that immediately puts caution flags over the first two interpretations, and it starts pointing towards the third. Because while Scripture doesn't say anything about the activities of Jesus between his death and resurrection, at least not clearly, it does say a lot about Noah, about his ministry, and about the role that Christ's Spirit played in the ministry of the prophets. So that's the first grid, the grid of Scripture that you can send this through. Second, let's consider the doctrine of judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Concerning that first interpretation, I want you to think about this. Why would Jesus go down to hell to preach condemnation to a group of sinners he has already condemned? Why the double condemnation when they were already judged? Second, why would Jesus single out and preach condemnation to only one generation of sinners in hell and not to any others? That doesn't match the singularity and impartiality of God's judgment as we see described elsewhere in Scripture. So that raises, I would say, another red flag on the first interpretation. Third, let's consider now the doctrine of angels, specifically concerning that second interpretation up there. The second interpretation argues that the spirits talked about here were fallen angels who grievously rebelled against God by lusting after and taking beautiful women for their wives during the time of Noah in an effort to create hybrid mutants to pervert the human bloodline. Boy, that sounds like a great movie. Not really. This comes from a rather ancient but sketchy interpretation of Genesis 6 regarding the meaning of sons of God. There's a lot I... Really want to say about that, but I don't have time. Let me just say this this morning. Such an interpretation, I believe, does not agree with the biblical nature of angels, first and foremost. The idea that spirits could ever possess physical bodies that could have physical relations with physical women to pass on what? Physical demon DNA is the opposite of what Jesus said on the matter. Jesus says in Luke 24 verse 39, a spirit cannot have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It is not possible. If it was, then we can neither trust Jesus's words in Luke 24, nor the reality of his physical resurrection. From the mouth of God, the Son himself, spiritual beings cannot have physical bodies. It's impossible. You say, well, well, it's like the incarnation. Okay, but think about that. Who accomplished the miracle of the incarnation? God does. God did. Who has the power of what? Creation. Himself. Are we going to attribute to demons the power that belongs to God alone? But wait, defenders of this interpreter, ter- interpretation also say this explains the flood. God sent the flood to get rid of that perverse human bloodline. No. God didn't send the flood because of the depravity of demons. God sent the flood because of the depravity of humans. And we read that this morning, if you were paying attention. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7 says this. The Lord saw the wickedness of who? man that it was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the lord regretted that he had made what man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart so the lord said i will blot out what man whom i have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for i am sorry that i have made them God wasn't destroying some demonic creation. He was destroying his creation because of the depravity into which it had fallen. And the earth was judged not because of the depraved wickedness and actions of angels, but because of the depraved wickedness and actions of humanity. They would not obey their creator. Such a view that I say does not agree with the biblical doctrines of angels. So, after examining the three interpretations through the biblical doctrines of scripture judgment and angels, not to mention by the way the doctrine of man and how Genesis 1 says kind always begets kind, I came to the conclusion that the only interpretation that stands up to the test of biblical doctrine is the third interpretation, that Jesus that Jesus during the time of Noah preached to the unbelievers who perished by the flood by his spirit through Noah. I would contend that this is the view that is most consistent with the biblical doctrines of scripture, judgment, angels, and man. So now with that mostly out of the way, and if you want to bat it around with me afterwards, that's fine. Let's see how this fits into actually what Peter's been teaching in the book of 1 Peter, because it fits in powerfully. So, Peter writes that Jesus was, he says here, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And by the way, the sense of that final phrase is, I believe, he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison because they formerly did not obey. You'll see that actually rendered that way in the NASB, so the the book that's, the Bible that's in front of you in the pew, as well as in the Legacy Standard Version, because the translators understood there's a comparison going on here between what the spirits are doing now they're in prison compared to what they were doing back then they were disobeying so jesus went and he proclaimed the spirits the question we have to ask ourselves is who are these spirits well they are spirits according to verse 20 who are now in prison because they did not obey during the days of Noah. It says when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And in fact, if you want to, if you look at the end of the verse, these spirits who are, who disobeyed during Noah's time, they are contrasted with the people, interestingly enough, literally in the Greek, the souls of those who were saved during Noah's time. So the implication is that these are spirits of humans, humans who had the opportunity to obey God during Noah's time, but they rejected that opportunity. And because they did not obey, not only did they perish in the flood, as we read this morning in Genesis chapter six, they are now condemned eternally and imprisoned in hell. And all because they did not obey in the day of salvation that was given to them. And notice, who did they not obey It doesn't say Noah. Verse 19 makes it clear. They did not obey Christ. It is Christ who came in the Spirit and proclaimed God's message to that generation, and it was Christ that that generation ultimately rejected and disobeyed. You say, well, wait, when did Christ (laughs) preach during the days of Noah? The answer is he preached during the days of Noah by his Spirit, Genesis 6-3 actually refers to this when, when it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And guess what? In 120 years, the flood came. Well, how did the Lord's Spirit contend with that generation? We know from the narrative, Genesis 6-8 and following tells us that the Lord's Spirit contended with that wicked, wicked generation through the person of who? Noah. So I'm saying all of this why? I'm saying all this so that you would know that Peter here is not teaching anything brand new. He is simply shedding new light on something that's been revealed since the time of Genesis. And Peter's clarifying that the divine spirit that contended with that wicked generation back then through Noah was actually Christ's own spirit. That's further confirmed, by the way, by Peter's own writing in this same letter, who wrote back, if you recall, back in chapter 1, verse 11, that the prophets who prophesied, which would have included Noah, they conducted their ministry how? It says by the spirit of Christ within them. So when Noah, who was a prophet and a preacher of righteousness, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, when he preached to his disobedient and wicked generation, he preached likewise by the Spirit of Christ within him. So now we come to the point, after all this interpretation, to finally ask ourselves this question this morning. Why? Like, why is Peter telling us all this? In the midst of his discussion on evangelism, what's the point? And the answer is, Peter's telling us this because he wants us to be greatly encouraged, listen to this, regarding the powerful resource that has been given to you and I in Christ Jesus, namely his very own spirit. See, just as Christ preached with power by his spirit through Noah to his generation, and just as Christ preached with power by his spirit through peter in his generation so also christ preaches with power by his spirit through us to our generation as well this is exactly what paul teaches in second corinthians chapter 5 verse 20 when he writes we are ambassadors for christ god making his appeal how through us how encouraging is that just like it was with noah in his day When we preach the gospel to those around us who are lost, when we give a reason for the hope that is in us with with gentleness and respect, it's not us ultimately that's preaching in that moment. It is God's, it is Christ's spirit who's preaching through us. Peter wants us to know this wonderful truth so that when you and I are struck with doubt as to our inadequacy to declare the saving gospel, we would remember that Christ has given us in those moments the power of his very own spirit. And see, unlike all the other interpretations that we looked at, those first two, this one actually ties right in with what Peter's been teaching on evangelism ever since chapter 2, verse 12. And it explains why it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's because when we follow closely after Christ in faith, we share in the power of Christ's spirit. You say, well, what's the significance So we're sharing Christ's spirit. What's what's that big deal about? Well, it shows the power that we have. Because think about it. How powerful is Christ's spirit? Well, as verse 18 says, Christ's spirit literally rose Christ's body from the dead and made it alive again. And second, Christ's Spirit literally took on an entire world in a generation where every thought and every intention of their heart was only evil continually. And Christ's Spirit saved eight people from out of that hopeless generation. That is the power that has been given to you and I, that has been given to the church in our day. It is the power of Christ's spirit. As Peter reminds us right here at the end of verse 20, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Think about that. For a moment, in the midst of a world that was so perverted and so depraved that every single human being on the face of the earth died under the sudden, escalated, immediate wrath of God, in that type of world, Christ's spirit still used Noah to save eight persons from the flood. That's power. Ladies and gentlemen, this same spirit of power dwells in us who belong to Christ Jesus and he enables us to both declare and to demonstrate the saving righteousness of God in Christ to our generation just as Noah did in his day. And again this fits in so well with the main point that Peter's been communicating ever since chapter 2 verse 12, which is this, one of the most powerful arguments we have in everyday evangelism is the argument of our what? lives. Our lives Sure, we have to give an answer to anyone who asks us. We need to have a reasoned response for the hope that is in us, but the only way that anyone is ever going to be interested in hearing anything that you and I have to say is if, they, if our lives back up our message, if they can see in us the saving goodness of the Spirit of Christ. And that's how the Spirit of Christ preaches, is not only through what we declare, it is also through what we demonstrate. And I think this is exactly the reason why Noah is the prophet that Peter uses for his example here. See, 2 Peter 2 verse 5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. But I want you to think about this this morning. Have you you even heard of one sermon that Noah ever gave? Can you think of even one thing that Noah ever said? Sure, at the end of his life, Noah passes on God's blessings and curses to his children. But regarding the message that he preached to his wicked generation, absolutely nothing in Scripture is recorded. And I think that's why Peter uses Noah as his example of evangelism here at this point in his letter. It's because Peter's been making the point for the last chapter and a half that the most powerful argument we can deliver in evangelism is the power of our ongoing transformed lives before the eyes of the unbelievers. Noah's called a preacher of righteousness, but until you come to the end of his life, you can't find one thing that Noah ever says. He just lives. Now, I'm sure Noah preached with words. Don't get me wrong. He was a herald of righteousness. But Scripture's testimony is silent regarding Noah's words. Scripture's testimony focuses on Noah's life in the midst of that generation. And I think that's Peter's whole point, particularly in light of everything that he's been saying for the last chapter and a half. Peter's point is that the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah primarily by how he lived. It was through Noah's purity patience and power that the spirit of christ preached to that unrepentant generation and that's exactly how god intends to preach to our generation as well it's through our own purity patience and power so first christ's spirit preached through noah's purity right after the Lord declared that he's going to destroy the world because of man's total wickedness. and the scripture tells us immediately afterwards in Genesis 6, 8-9, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In other words, he wasn't perfect, but he was repentant. He was repentant by the spirit of Christ within him. Noah was righteous, he was blameless, he walked with God in the midst of his generation. That spoke volumes. So Christ's spirit preached through Noah's purity in the midst of a world that was overcome with wickedness. Second, Christ's spirit preached through Noah's patience. Peter says here in verse 20, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. For 120 years, Noah never stopped declaring and demonstrating righteousness. Even though no one ever listened to him, Noah never gave up. As Noah patiently preached and warned his listeners through word and deed about the nearness of a divine worldwide judgment that was coming, the rest of the world laughed at him and kept on going about their everyday business. Sounds a lot like the days that we're living in today, doesn't it? As Jesus says in Luke 17, 26-27, As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the coming of the, so it shall be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. They, and the idea is, as Noah was carrying out his ministry... They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. For 120 years, the ancient world was a lot like the world that you and I are currently living in right now. Described in Romans 2, verse 4, filled with people who presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to the point of repentance. See, the whole world never listened to a single thing that Noah said But by the spirit of Christ within him, he kept on patiently delivering and demonstrating the message of Christ. That spoke volumes. Christ's spirit preached through Noah's purity. Christ's spirit preached through Noah's patience. And Christ's spirit preached through Noah's power. As a result of Noah's faithful words and deeds, not only does an entire generation now stand justly imprisoned in hell for disobeying and rejecting the truth that they had heard. But Noah's own family, eight persons, eight souls, were saved and brought safely through the waters. That is power. Noah was literally an instrument both of divine judgment and of divine salvation for the whole world. And that's exactly what God is calling the church to be in our day as well. Just like it is with us. For what did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16? When we preach the gospel, we're a fragrance of life to life for some and a fragrance of death to death for others. Noah preached with his life by the power of Christ's spirit within him. So it must be for us as well. Believers today, just like Noah of old, are called to testify by our words and by our deeds to the hope of the gospel before a world that ever increasingly mocks and scorns us in disbelief. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to take I want you to take some time and look around you. We are living increasingly in the days of Noah. Christ is coming. The judge is standing at the door. And behold, just like in Noah's day, now is the acceptable hour, and today is the day of salvation. The door remains open for you. That's why we proclaim flee from the wrath to come and run to the forgiveness and salvation that is found in Christ alone. Why do we proclaim this message? It's because the door of salvation does not remain open for long. Do you believe this? I think we're living in an American church that doesn't. Don't be like those around you. Like in Noah's day, who followed after their own sinful lusts, who were spurned the mercy of God and who said with scoffing, where is the promise of his coming? All things are continuing as they have been from the beginning of creation. They overlook this fact that just as the world that then existed was destroyed with water and perished, so also this world that now exists is being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. Do not presume upon the mercy and kindness of the Lord. All things will not continue as they have been. Noah teaches us that lesson. There is a day of judgment. There is a day of destruction coming. And this is the word. This is the word that the Spirit of Christ preaches. Get in the ark. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Have you done that this morning? I urge you this morning to confess your sin before the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a payment for your sins and run to the mercy and forgiveness that is found in him alone for you cannot presume on the morrow. You have no idea what even the next five minutes will bring. The door is open now and Christ has come. And to those of you who have this morning, Brothers and sisters, we need to be challenged from this passage that we have the days of Noah around us. It's true. We have the message of Noah before us, but praise God, we have the spirit of Noah within us. The spirit of Christ himself. The same spirit that was powerfully at work in Noah's ministry. And this is within us today. This is the same spirit by which Christ was raised from the dead. We share in the power of Christ's spirit. Therefore, our task as a church and as believers is not futile. I know we look around at the world and we say, wow, it's a hopeless cause. And so in light of the hopelessness that we see, we sit there and say, well, maybe I don't have to be subject. Maybe I don't have to honor everyone. Maybe I don't have to love the brotherhood. Maybe I don't have to fear God. Maybe I don't have to follow Jesus this once. Maybe it's okay to choose comfort rather than Christ. But that is not true. We have the power of Christ within us to live according to his word just as Noah did in his day. We can be subject to... In the midst of our generation, we can honor everyone. In the midst of our generation, we can love the brotherhood. In the midst of this generation, we can fear God. In the midst of this generation, young people, old people, we can follow Jesus. We can do good no matter the cost. In the midst of our current generation, do not sell the spirit of Christ short. Well, the young people nowadays, they're falling away because the world's just so bad. No, they're falling away because they haven't trusted in Jesus. And if they trusted in Christ, they would stand with power, and that's what Peter wants us to remember. Sure, we might suffer, but this has never been about comfort, has it? Sure, we might only save eight people, but this has never been about being in the majority. It's about being used by God as elect exiles to demonstrate his divine purity and patience and power in the midst of suffering in order to bring about the salvation of the lost until the, before the door closes. And by the power of Christ's spirit, you and I as a church can do exactly that. And that is why it is better to suffer with Christ rather than the sin of this world. Because just like Noah, when we follow closely after Jesus, we share in the power of his spirit. So this week, may God's, may Christ's spirit speak through our holy, humble, and happy words and deeds so that more souls might enter into the ark of Christ's salvation so that we might be used to save some. Because, ladies and gentlemen, scripture says the time is short. This is the word of God from 1 Peter three nineteen through 20, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until Christ returns to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how it sobers us As we come to the end of this passage that's been about everyday evangelism from the very beginning to the very end, at last we come to the beating heart by which you call us to engage in this great task before us. It is because there is, you are a God of holiness and you cannot endure iniquity And there is a day of wrath coming, a day of judgment upon all those who do not seek refuge in your Son. And so you have called us as your people to be about the task of declaring the gospel each and every day. Father, help us to be faithful in this. Help us to not retreat help us not to question our own ability to declare the gospel Help us to go forward in courageous faith by the power of Christ's spirit within us and declare with purity and patience The message of Jesus until he comes Father we have seen the open door. We have come to know Christ Help us not to be selfish and keep it to ourselves Help us, Father, help us by the power of your spirit to save, if it be by your grace, just eight people, just eight more people until the door closes. This week, help us as a church, Father, to be about the mission of just saving eight more people for the time is short. Give us grace, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.